Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 74 of Conquering Columbus. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Caligiri, CEO of the James Cancer Hospital. And you'll get to hear a lot more about his long list of accomplishments later, but I think the most incredible thing about Dr. Caligiri is his incredible work ethic and dedication to his field, and I really hope you guys get a lot from this episode. Before we get to that interview, though, guys, I want to take a moment and ask you all for a quick favor. Go ahead, pick up that phone of yours you're listening to this on, and uh, check out your podcast app, whether it's iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, uh, whatever you like to listen on. Uh, there will be a subscribe button, and if you click that, it'll make sure that you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. And the last thing we want to do before we start the show is take the time to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. We also want to give a special shout-out to our friend Kevin Stoller, a former Columbus resident who recently released a new book, Creating Better Learning Environments, and if you're an educator or you know someone who is, we highly recommend checking out the book, which will be linked down in the show notes. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. All right, Conkers, that's all we got. Let's get this show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus, live from the James Cancer uh, Center here in Columbus, Ohio. We've got Dr. Michael Caligiri with us today. And Dr. Caligiri is currently the director of the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, as well as the CEO of the James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute here in Columbus. He's also the chair of cancer research for the JL Maracas Nationwide Insurance Enterprise 
and was elected the president of the American Association of Cancer Research for 2017 to 2018. And on top of all that, he has received numerous awards for his own research, teaches as a professor for the Department of Internal Medicine, as well as the Department of Molecular Virology, Immunology, and Medical Genetics at the Ohio State College of Medicine. And since 1990, over 100 students have trained in the Caligiuri Laboratory, receiving over 200 awards for the research. Uh, we are extremely honored to have him on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Dr. Caligiuri. Thank you. Glad to be on Conquering Columbus. This is a real honor. Usually a quarter of the interview isn't the intro, but right. for you, we just couldn't condense it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because my mother wrote the intro, you know. <laughs> so uh, one of the places we like to start with is just what's a typical day look like for you today with everything you got on your plate? Well, I'll show you my day today. You're seeing an index card right now, and it's filled from about <laughs> 7 or 8 in the morning till 7 or 8 at night. And that's my day is usually meeting with people. As the center director and the CEO of the James, and in these kinds of leadership positions, largely it's how can I help you? You're here to help other people solve problems so that your organization can run effectively. So my day is largely meetings, although I'll attend seminars and you know try to make some rounds in the hospital as well, see, see some patients, and perhaps more importantly, see the staff and just let them know how much I care about what they're doing. So something interesting there, I mean, you pulled out a card, the way that you manage your day. I think people are usually interested when people reach your level in life, kind of how they've managed to get to where they are and how they articulate their time in different situations like that. So do you have any specifics? Like, do you create a card like that every single night? Are there any special tips or tricks that you do to manage your own life? Well, I use my office assistants create this card for me every day. And I, it's in my right hand, my shirt pocket, so I can look at it throughout the day and know what's going on. And uh, I find it works much better than your phone. And it's just quick. It's easy. It's right here. And uh, so that, that's, that happens every day, including Saturdays and Sundays. So I have a card. You'll see if when we walk out of my office, there'll be a card for Saturday and Sunday because uh, it's a seven-day-a-week job. Um, I have really three huge responsibilities right now. One is running the cancer center, which is one of the largest cancer centers in the country. Two is running the cancer hospital, which is the third largest cancer hospital in America. And three is running my laboratory. I stopped seeing patients as an oncologist because I'm a leukemia doctor about four or five years ago. But these are three main things I do professionally. And one of the problems when you have this much responsibility is you really don't have much time to yourself. And so one of the things I've done recently is I'll have blocks of time in the day where nothing is scheduled. And, you know, if I wanted to, somebody wants to see me, um, if I need to think, um, I'm supposed to always be writing grants. My lab is very well funded by research grants from the NIH. And, you know, I generally do those in evenings and weekends, but I'd love to think and talk about grants with other people. So I've some blocks of times, usually two, three hours during the day instead of just wall-to-wall meetings. And then one for conquering Columbus. Right. Luckily, we Big got time. Yeah, luckily, we got to carve out a we block on a Friday evening. the for that one. So um, let's kind of take it back here. So yeah. let's jump back in time. Uh, can you tell us 10,000-foot overview what life looked like for you growing up? Sure. And where you grew up and kind of what led you to medical school? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great question. So I grew up in Buffalo, New York. I'm a big-time Bills fan. Um, you know, I was born in 1956. I'm 61 years old, and I don't know why, but at a very, very early age, probably around eight or nine, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I'm one of ten children, uh, the first of the children to go to university, and um, you know, uh, what weren't any role models in my life um, in terms of physicians or scientists, 
like that. So I really can't explain why I had that feeling, um, but I did, and you know, no one shot it down. So it just became more and more of a passion. It seemed like the more I said it, the more people would like it. So it was, first it was probably positive reinforcement in a sea of children in a large house. Um, and then so, you know, went through grade school and high school and, um, as I say, went to the University of Buffalo. I lived at home. I was, uh, uh, you know, it was the only college I really uh, had any possibility of going to. It was a state university. It was about $400 per semester. Had three jobs. I uh, worked as a wine steward. I worked as a, uh, uh, ran a bingo concession stand on the weekends, wine steward during the evenings. And then I did some construction work for my dad as well. So put my way through college and, you know, knew from the beginning that the only way you get into med school is if you have good grades. I was a total gunner. I wasn't going to not get good grades. And I studied eight hours every day, seven days a week. And I would, but, you know, in college, people don't realize that, you know, you're really in classes only three or four hours. So even if you study eight hours every day, copying your notes over and doing everything you should do, you still have, you know, like half the day left between sleep and work. So I'd get three, four hours of work in, study eight hours, have eight hours to sleep and go to my classes. And it was my life for about three and a half years of college and did very well. You know, I would take no prisoners, kind of a <laughs> cutthroat pre-med. I actually majored in humanities. I didn't like science. I never took an upper level science course. And uh, I just didn't do well, didn't like science at all and didn't discover that till much, much later. So I was a humanities major. And then I spent the last you know, almost year, about a, three quarters of a year in Italy studying art history, history of Italian opera, um, history of Italian literature, the Italian language. I'm of Italian descent, so I was kind of discovering my ancestry. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, fortunately did well in college and um, uh, applied to med schools all over the place and got into Stanford Med Schools. and. Uh, I always joke, uh, true story, that when I got into Stanford Med School and I told my dad I got into Stanford, he said, what the hell do you want to go to Connecticut for? (laughs) Stanford, Connecticut, but he soon learned it was in uh, California, and I went out to med school there. Mm -hmm. And I'm from Southern California. Stanford's kind of the... the school that, you know, you want... did you want to attend as an undergrad when you're growing up as a high school kid. If you don't get into Ohio State. Right, if you don't get into Ohio State, that's right. Um, And, uh, (laughs) you know, Palo Alto is a beautiful area, so... Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience there in Palo sure. Alto and yeah, um, it was, kind of what med school is like at such a high-level institute? Yeah, it was very, um, I don't think anyone had been admitted from Stan- from the University of Buffalo to Stanford in decades. And uh, I was very intimidated. Uh, I wasn't a science major. The average age of my class was like 28 years old. Uh, I always think I was one of a handful of kids that were 22. And, you know, I had never lived, I never dormed. I didn't know how to... Uh, engage socially, you know, uh, I see my kids now have all graduated from college and, you know, they're social animals in college. Well, I lived at home, I worked three jobs, so when I got to med school, virtually everyone there had dormed. Um, and I was, you know, kind of a poor kid going to Stanford, and uh, I can tell you about how I paid for it in a minute. But, uh, so that was intimidating and almost a little depressing, like I just didn't know how to fit in right at first. And I'm a very social animal as it is now. So um, that was a struggle learning how to fit in with these incredibly brilliant people and making sure that I did well. Um, and But it was, Stanford was life-changing for me because it was, I literally got the first day there, I remember someone saying to me, are you going into academic medicine? And you know, I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. 
I wanted to be a pediatrician, work in the inner city of Buffalo, where I the bingo hall that I worked in uh, was, and I knew a lot of the uh, people there, uh, Hispanic and African-American folks, and that's where I wanted to go back and be their pediatric doc. But what happened there was that I learned what academic medicine was, I learned uh, what research was, and I had some fascinating experiences that told me, wow, there can, for you, Mike Caligiuri, there can be a lot more um, to medicine. I had an experience once on the ward where a patient came in with rejection of their kidney and uh, you know couldn't urinate because they had a kidney transplant and we were rejecting it. And um, you know I was able to work over the night, give the patient experimental medicine, and within two days the patient was able to urinate. You know we saved the kidney, and it just blew me away that we could trick Mother Nature, first to believing that that kidney should be there, mm-hmm. and then when it realized it shouldn't be there and tried to reject it, we had medicines to target the T cells in the immune system to keep it from rejecting. And so it was like a laser beam that shot on me and said, I have to do this. I have to be in transplantation. Um, I have to do immunology. This is really what I'm, I'm, I'm called to do. It just, it just blew me away. And, you know, my rotation in pediatrics, while interesting and challenging, it just didn't float my boat. So one of the things I learned in med school was follow your passion. You're fortunate enough to be in med school or whatever it is you're doing. You have this opportunity. And once your heart starts going pitter-patter, uh, don't pass that up nonchalantly. You know, just, uh, just um, you know, take it, take it serious. That's, that's maybe God trying to tell you something. And that's what happened to me. It's like it was the first thing that really floated my boat in med school was this experience I had with this patient. And I'd liked immunology, and, you know, but it was 35 years ago, and this was really cutting-edge stuff. And... Uh, I knew then I was going to do something with immunology, some, and so I then said, "Well, what do you what do you need to be to be a transplanter? Because that's a transplant immunologist." And they said, "Well, you have to be a surgeon." I hated surgery, so I was like, "Is there anything else you're transplanting?" And they said, "Well, there's this new thing, bone marrow transplant, for this disease called leukemia." So then I went, did a bone marrow transplant rotation. I did a leukemia cancer rotation, and that's kind of how it all came together. I said, "I'm going to do immune therapy in cancer." It's going to involve, you know, immunology, and it's really neat because just today, literally in the last five years, immune therapy for cancer has exploded. But I've been in the field 35 years, so it's been a really neat journey. So you can talk a little bit about arriving at Stanford, and you said you know might have been the first person out of Buffalo to be um, admitted to a school like that. And who knows how many years? Did you ever feel a sense of, you know, how am I going to belong? Do I belong here? Am I am I good enough to be there? Were you absolutely enough? To- I was no, I was not. And I'm a very, very confident person. But, you know, I knew one thing. I knew that I would work harder than anyone because that was my MO in college. You know, I will study more than anyone. But it was more the social. You know, med school actually isn't hard. It's Undergraduate is much harder if you're trying to get A's in undergraduate. Med school, it's like you're in. We want you to learn, do well. In fact, Stanford had no grades. It was really just pass-fail. And even when you failed something, they just help you pass it. There was no honors, no AOA, which are honor society and a lot of med schools didn't have any of that. They just wanted you to be there and do well. And um, I couldn't afford to go there in four years. And they had a five-year program where if you went, the fir- it took the first two years, which are pre-clinic, and you did three years, you would work, so part-time essentially, you would work in a lab and then they would give you, waive your tuition 
and give you a stipend. So I was like, man, I'm doing this. I did five year because I was a little worried to your point about am I going to do well? I'll slow down and then I can work in a lab and I can pay me for my first three years. And so I did that. I worked in a lab and I worked in a physiology lab and it, things worked out so well that I actually taught physiology to the first year med students for my second, third and fourth and fifth years of med school. Became a physiology professor, teacher, not a professor, but a teacher and taught physiology to them. And um, what happened is, so the first three years I got all paid for because I worked in a physiology lab. Then the fourth year, your first year in clinic for me, you had to pay for it. But then they give you the fifth year free. So in other words, they wanted you to go five years, wanted you to experience more than just getting a rote medical education. And the five-year program, I left there essentially debt-free. I had great preclinical. I really learned physiology really well, so much so that I taught cardiovascular physiology to the the med students for the next four years and I did things like medical center admissions committee and uh, developed social skills and realized that you know in life it's not about how smart you are it's really not what's important there were people in my class who were just brilliant you know there's like great fraction of the class had master's degree and PhDs and were brilliant but I finished really near the top of my class and one of the reasons why I finished top of my class is I worked hard and I was nice and I really learned at that time that it's really what it's all about. Success isn't about how smart you are. Nobody cares how smart you are. They care if you're working hard and if you're a nice person and get along with people and can uh, move, move the needle. Yeah, and I, and I was going to ask, were there any key mentors, anybody who played a significant role while you were at med school that kind of pushed you towards um, that immunology uh, pathway or kind of what the path that you took? Was there anyone that had significant, sorry, uh, impact on your career. I forward. had a professor there, and he's still there, and he's a, a, a legend and an international superstar. His name is Irv Weissman, and he was responsible for the immunology course, and he taught in a very clear and simplistic way. And I learned, and remember, I was I was a humanities major, so it was really one of the few courses in my pre pre my preclinical years at Stanford that was. I understood. I won't want to, I don't want to take anything away from maybe everybody else understood them. I didn't. I wasn't maybe a good auditory or visual learner, but when he spoke between what he talked about, the immune system and the way he presented it, I was hooked. And then I just put that on the shelf and left it thinking I'm going to be a pediatrician. And then when I was on the wards, boom, there goes the dynamite. Out pops this patient that has immune rejection. And all that stuff I had learned a couple years ago in immunology came back out. I'm like, yeah, oh my gosh, this has clinical application. And this this guy's going to lose his kidney because his immune system is not working right or it is working right. It's rejecting what it should. We need to trick it. And I, so that that was that was a, he was a very memorable professor. Yeah. So you talk about not being a very good audio visual learner like maybe that's sitting in the classroom and learning that style. Yeah. How did you find out the way that you did learn? And then I think, you know, sometimes you hear someone that reaches such a level as yours and, and they admit a deficiency in one area and it makes you feel a hundred times better about yours. Yeah. You know, you sit in a classroom and you can't learn a certain style and you might resort to thinking that you're not smart enough. So. Yeah. So I always tell kids uh, that I meet with here and I work with a lot of kids that, you know, they struggle uh, in, in either getting into med school or, or, um, in med school because there's a lot of standardized testing and I always tell people I um, never did better than the 50th percentile on any standardized test I ever took um, I 
in med school, you have to take, there's six parts to your part one of the board. You have to pass it. If you don't pass it, you can't go to the next level. At Stanford, you had to pass four of the six to go, and you'd have to retake if you got one or two. And if you lost three, you couldn't go to the clinic. So I passed four of the six. I failed two. Um, and, um, you know, because I'm not a good test taker. Um, I actually knew my material. I finished at the top of my class at Stanford because there were no grades. And because there were no grades, they judged you with how you performed clinically. And I knew my science, especially physiology. I taught physiology. So I knew this stuff cold, but I'm not a good test taker. So SATs in college, I think I got 1,000. I don't know if it's still out of 1,600, but it was when I went. And, you know, I, got, I mean, that was like barely 50 percentile. And MCATs, I don't remember my scores, but I got barely 50 percentile. Just even though I got like a 3.8 something average in college and did well and you know, and then got to Stanford, and lucky me, I got in there because tests weren't, it, there was only pass. So, I mean, if you failed, they just helped you get through it. And so you were judged, you know, by how you performed. And that's where number two and number three come in, the work ethic, the personality. And when you look at leadership, and I do this to my kids, and right now I'm raising my hand and showing my three fingers like a Boy Scout, and the little finger is the least important, the uh, fourth digit is the very important and the middle digit is the most important. Least important is your intelligence. If you get through high school, you're smart enough to do anything. You have to get more education, but you are smart enough to do anything. Second and most important, very close to the most important, is your work ethic. You have to work hard. People really will ask you to your face or behind your back you know, if you're a hard worker. And that's really determining for success. And third is your personality. You have to get along with people. You have to be humble. You have to roll with the punches. And in med school, when you're on the wards, it's all about number two and number three. They want you to work hard. They want you to be, you know, if they tell you to go get the pizza, you go get the pizza. And you don't, you stay late, you stay late, you know. You're, you're, the, you're the scut puppy, you know. And that counts a lot. That's what impresses people um, in life. And if you look at successful leaders in organizations, no one's asking them how smart they are, you know. I was, you know, it's do they work hard? You know, are they diligent in what they do? And are they reasonably nice people? And they lead effectively in that way. So I learned a lot of that. It, a lot of it, not necessarily conscious, but I learned a lot of that. And yeah, I tell a lot of kids in school, you know, I failed, I failed my first two sections of the board. You know, I 50 percentile of uh, uh, MCAT, 50 percentile SAT, you know, and, you know, here I am sitting in this office, you know, so. It's not about how smart you are. So we can go 10,000 feet deep here in a few minutes in terms of you know all that you've accomplished post-med school and what you have going on now. But before we jump in there, I kind of want to talk a little bit about what did your siblings do and then what did your parents do growing up to kind of understand um, where your mindset and your work ethic came from? And Well, um, my dad was a migrant worker. Uh, interestingly, we're, as I said, we're of Italian descent. And when he grew up, Italians were the uh, migrant workers of the day. Now it's more the Mexican, Mexican-American population. But when he grew up, it was the Italians. And so he uh, grew up picking um, beans and strawberries on farms, uh, you know, and lived in a, uh, during the summers, lived in a shack with his four brothers and sisters, uh, you know, in a huge, somebody's wealthy plantation farm in upstate New York. Um, 
and so, but his lucky break came when he was drafted into the military. And he was a grease monkey. He was a he was a mechanic. A mechanic. You know, he went to a trade school, a mechanic, and um, had a lucky break and went to uh, um, was in the Air Force and then uh, got further education on the GI Bill and you know subsequently became a salesman. And he was a salesman uh, for the Gates Rubber Company, sold fan belts, uh, gas stations, and hydraulic hose and things like that. Um, and my mom uh, grew up, same thing, Italian neighborhood, also did picking, uh, maybe less so than my dad, where it was really the whole, all kids were trying to make ends meet with the family, that's how they made their money. Um, and uh, But my mom did as well, and they met in Buffalo, New York, because they were their four, their four, their two parents, all four of my grandparents immigrated from Italy to Buffalo without knowing anybody, got married in Buffalo, and then had their kids, my mom and my dad. So um, they, my grandparents came over in the 1910 to 1920 wave of Italian immigrants. Um, and then, you know, before I knew it, I was number, I have an older sister, and I was number two, and then seven more girls, and then my brother. So we're ten kids, eight girls, and two boys. And my brother and I are about 13 years apart, but seven girls between us. My sister, older sister, is two years older. And, um, you know, it was, I mean, it's like if I asked you guys what it was like growing up, it was like, it's like what you knew. That was the normal for me. We had 10 kids. We had one bathroom. Um, you know, it was, people were like, wow, that must have been crazy. I'm like, no. We had two sinks in there, and you, anybody could go in at any time. Yeah. You know, <laughs> somebody in the shower and stuff like that. So, but we had a generally a, happy frugal upbringing um you know i would say it was probably very typical in that way no 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 extra money um but nobody went hungry and we were all um you know work ethic i i first started working and all of my sisters started working we were about seven or eight years old at a bingo hall and i worked there from the stage of seven or eight till 21 years old every saturday and every sunday selling soda, potato chips, coffee, uh, to a crowd of about 300 African-American, Puerto Rican uh, bingo players in the inner city of Buffalo. And we owned this little concession stand and made about 50 bucks a week, which you know paid for our high school and some of our college, and that's how we all did it. Everybody worked there. As a matter of fact, the hall closed the year my brother graduated from college. <laughs> so it served us extremely well and gave us that really strong work ethic. And my dad was a really hardworking person and just expected us all to be working and paying our own way. There was no saving for college, no, none of that. It was like, if you're going to go, I don't know how you're paying for it, but we're not paying for it. So, Are any of them in the medical profession? I have a sister, Terry, who um, was a physician assistant. And when I was the first faculty member at Roswell Park Cancer Institute in Buffalo, she became a physician assistant when I started the bone marrow transplant unit there. Uh, this is jumping ahead after all my training at, in Boston and uh, she started there and she realized you know I could do this and she went back to med school and she's an internist now in Buffalo but uh, my older sister was a claims adjuster my sister Chris works uh, as an administrator in a cancer center um, my sister Kathy and Lisa were both social workers my sister Terry is the physician my sister Lisa was a social worker my sister uh, Rosaire is a teacher. My sister Regina did uh, language, English as a second language to Chinese people. And um, my brother Joe is a uh, prosecutor in the Supreme Court of Ohio here. So he moved here, and one of my sisters moved here after I moved here to Ohio. 
I have a, my last sister, Joanne, has Down syndrome, and she was, <laughs> worked as in a vocational center, too. So she's actually a twin of my brother. You didn't even need to count those. You just, right, you just had them, had them all right up laid out. Mary, um, Michael, Chrissy, Kathy, Lisa, Terry, Rosé, Regina, Joe, Joanne. <laughs> so it's funny. My mom's, so I'm, my last name is Manucci. My mom's last name, maiden last name was Bacchi. Uh-huh. So I'm Italian on both ends as yeah. well. And, and they had nine kids in their family. And they're the yes. same way. It's all, yeah. they all know what everybody's doing. But yeah. We're fortunate. We have a family reunion every year. Mm-hmm. I have 27 nieces and nephews. My, my dad is 91 and still comes. And, of course, all my brothers and sisters and their in-laws come. And so mm-hmm. it's great. Sounds about right. Good family. Um, but so we could probably spend the whole rest of our time talking about everything that you did going up to being here at the James. But we want yeah. to talk a little bit about everything we have going on right now. So maybe like a 10,000-foot overview of what led you to becoming CEO here at the James. Well, I had great mentors along the way. You know, my greatest mentor in my professional life is a woman named Clara Bloomfield. And I, after Stanford, I went to Harvard and did internal medicine, oncology, and immunology, uh, clinical training, and postdoctoral research training, and joined the faculty at Harvard. And after about 15 minutes on the faculty, I got a call from this woman saying, my name's Clara Bloomfield. I've moved to Roswell Park Cancer Institute in Buffalo. I understand you're from Buffalo. I'd like to recruit you here. And she recruited me from Harvard to Roswell Park Cancer Institute, where I helped her build a bone marrow transplant unit and um, started my own laboratory in immunology. And uh, she was just a great mentor to me. She taught me, you know, she's an incredibly intense, hardworking person. And she taught me really how to navigate the world of academic medicine, that is a university, being how to become a assistant associate and full professor and she was staunchly supportive of me and any support I provide to people myself now these days comes from knowing and watching Clara for me Um, she's a dear trusted best friend and an amazing individual she was recruited to Ohio State with her husband Albert de la Chapelle a very famous scientist and she's a very famous clinical scientist and they recruited me here so that's how I got here Clara was the head of the cancer center for about five years and then she said Michael it's time for you to do this so again very perfect mentor right building succession and then I had the chance to take it take it over and uh, you know I first was head of hematology oncology and then when that came I became also head of the cancer center and then I was head of the cancer center for about five years and you know another friend and mentor David Schuler was head of the uh, the James at that time and um, he was getting ready to, you know, move on. He's 65, and felt that I would be a worthy successor to him as the as the head of the James. And so, um, you know, I about 10 years ago now, I took uh, I was I stopped running hematology and oncology, continued to run the cancer center, and took became the CEO of the James Cancer Hospital and Soloff Research Institute. And it's been a fabulous ride. I've had, uh, we've made amazing success. We've, during my time now, built the third largest cancer hospital in America. Sadly, but importantly, we're 100% full right now, today, Friday. Um, I think it's September 29th. Yep. Uh, You know, we're 100% full. We don't have a single bed. So the good news is we were there for the, we've doubled our size. We're huge. And, but the sad news is there's a lot of cancer to cure. And the, the sadder news is that it takes money to, to drive the cure to cancer. We've had phenomenal success. We probably have 15,000 people cured of cancer and tens and tens of thousands living successfully with cancer, all treated at the James. 
I've been able to build a system with the help of so many, many people we're not mentioning today. Most importantly, Jeff Walker, who's the uh, associate director of the Cancer Center and uh, really the COO of the whole cancer program. We have probably 170 physicians here, and everybody does one cancer. And that's probably the most important thing I could leave your viewers in the podcast. If you hear those three words, you have cancer, you want to get a second opinion from somebody that just does your cancer. And the James is filled with docs that just do one cancer. They do research in it. They lecture around the world in it. They uh, uh, teach medical students and fellows in it, and they t take care of patients. So they know everything about your cancer, and you can't get that in the community. Uh, they provide another service, a different service, not better or worse, different, but you got to get that opinion from that expert. And that's what we've built here. We've recruited over 400 physicians, scientists, physicians, scientists. We've spent about a billion dollars doing it over my 20 years here now. Our cancer center, when we got here under Clara's leadership, when she just got here, it was on probation from the National Cancer Institute. She got us to an excellent, and I took over, got it to an outstanding. And again, with a great team, then we got an exceptional. And then last time, we got an exceptional with a perfect score from the National Cancer Institute, the first time in the history of the National Cancer Institute that a cancer center in the United States, and they're 45 and got a perfect score. So we've had an amazing ride between the James Cancer Hospital being top in the size-wise and filled with these phenomenal physicians and nurses and pharmacists and social workers, and then the cancer center being this research machine. But we needed new ideas to fund the research. So that's where, when I became the head of um, the cancer hospital, I thought of what turned out to be Pelotonia. Um, I just had the idea for a bike event, but two incredible people, Cindy Hilsheimer, amazing person in this community, and Danny Rosenthal, another amazing person from our community, worked with me together to create Pelotonia, and uh, that's now bringing in, you know, it'll be over $150 million in the first nine years. So it's just been an amazing, amazing way that we've supported cancer research here at Ohio State University. What does that process look like of trying to bring in those physicians that are the best in the world of that one type of cancer into Columbus, Ohio, convincing them that this is the place to be and building a culture of excellence? For well, it, it's a great question. At first, you know, my argument was always, well, opportunity is inversely proportional to what's in place. And when we just got here, nothing was in place. So great opportunity, right? If you want to take a shot at your job, the best thing could happen is there's nobody in your job and you're going to move in and, or the person who's in it just left. But if there are five people doing your job, it's going to be like, well, get in line and maybe we'll think of you someday. So here, when I first got here, there was no one here that we really wanted to, I shouldn't say no one, but very few that were here. And we knew we wanted 100, 200 positions. So I could say to you, look, at Harvard, there's six deep of you. You're never going to get your shot. I was at Harvard. That's why I left. But you come here, you're going to, you're going to be in charge. You're going to be the woman. You're going to be the man. And you're going to be able to really create a name for yourself nationally by being a leader much earlier in your career. And that's true, and it worked extremely well for us to recruit like 200. That's once we got to the exceptional range for the cancer center, then it became, can I come to Ohio State and work for you? And so that became pretty easy. But it's hard to hold on to your faculty, because once you're good, think of like the NFL, if you want to use the football analogy, or you know, once you're good, people want your players. And then it becomes a retention. And that's where dollars from Pelotonia become really, really important, because it's a great retention tool be able to provide researchers with extra resources to do the research here that they might not be able to do elsewhere. Right, and then a lot of that money comes from grants, and I know, or at least I don't know, but I would guess that 
with as large as the administration, as large as the backing of Ohio State is, that that funding and that I know there's a lot of back end to those grants to go into those grants. I mean, does that help at all? We built Ohio a huge, yeah, we built a huge infrastructure in the cancer center so that if you want to put in a grant in, all the administrative issues with getting a grant are all taken care of. All you need to do is the science, and you need to do the science well. It's competitive, but all you need to do is the science um, to to really. Um, put that grant in. And we've seen a quadrupling of the funding from the National Cancer Institute since I've been here because of great infrastructure and great recruits. And again, I credit Jeff Walker and Clara and other folks, Chris Garcello, that just put an amazing program together to make it seamless for us to get grants. Okay. And then so let's talk a little bit about, you were elected recently the president of the American Association for Cancer Research for 2017-2018. So yeah. kind of what does that role entail? And what do you think made you stand out as a candidate for it? Well, it's a phenomenal honor. Uh, I'm humbled to be uh, elected to the position. It's the oldest. It's over 110 years old and the largest. There's uh, 37,000 members in 108 countries, a cancer research organization in the world. So it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, it's, if you, it's, it's like anything else. I've, I've been active in the organization and in many, many different committees and doing the best I can for many years. And what happens is at some point your peers are in a nominating committee and they put you up to run for the office. What I'm most proud of is I think I'm the, I know I'm the first uh, professor at Ohio State to, be ever, to ever be the president of the AACR. So that's really cool. And I think what that says, it's not that Mike Caligiuri is at Ohio State. It's that the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center is recognized as world class. And I was fortunate enough to be the director here and nominated. And they say, oh, you know, one of the, I ran against someone else. And it's like, well, they're doing great. Let's pick this guy. You know, so I really credit Ohio State and the Ohio State Comprehensive Cancer Centers and leaders that came before me uh, as, with the success of my election. It's a phenomenal opportunity. I mean, I'm popping all over the world. But what's really neat is you get a chance to do your presidential initiative. And my presidential initiative is to focus on something called cancer health disparities. And what that really means is that depending if you're black or you're white or you're Hispanic, for the same cancer, there are different outcomes. For example, if you have a male and you're prostate cancer and you're black, you're going to have twice as high the chance of dying of prostate cancer than a white person. If you're African-American woman, you're going to have twice, not about 50% higher the chance of dying of breast cancer than a white woman. So that shouldn't be. We don't know why that is. It's not necessarily um, social, um, economic, genetic. It's probably many, many of those things. And so I've gotten the green light from the AACR to really focus on the genetic differences that might account for our health disparities in cancer. And we're going to do a really neat project with a historically black college to see if we can't learn more about the genetics of cancer in African Americans um, to try to right this wrong um, uh, for our society. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a lot of interesting research. And um, we'll definitely follow along here at Conquering Columbus as the initiative goes forward. But Josh, you got anything? It seemed like you wanted to ask a question earlier. No, I just, I think maybe one of the final questions before we wrap up here is to talk a little bit about um, some of the research that your students are doing, and they've achieved a lot of success. So I don't know if you want to touch on some of the highlights that are going on right now and sure. kind of where you think that success yeah. is stemming from. 
Well, you know, one of the things I want to mention quickly is the success in research depends on the funding. And, you know, we have a phenomenal leader for Pelotani right now, Doug Allman. I hope you get a chance to interview him or maybe you did interview him. Or yep. If you guys go back there, that episode will be uh, linked up in the show notes if you want to check out Doug's episode with us. He's an amazing, fascinating uh, and just selfless leader. He's just a, a great person. So uh, a lot of it's fueled through Pelotani. That's why I bring that up. But yeah, no, we're, we work on how the immune system recognizes cancer in your body. You know, the fact is, is that you like to get cancer all the time, but your immune system finds it and puts it, puts it away. And so when someone does have cancer, we're interested in how did the immune system break down? How did that cancer break through enemy lines? And we're having really, really interesting success in understanding, one, how, what eyes do the immune system use to see, and then what do they see? And then when the tumor can put the immune system to sleep, how do we wake it up? And we spend a lot of time on that in my laboratory, mostly in diseases called leukemia and lymphoma, but we're really immune players. And we're developing immune molecules to inject into folks who have cancer to see if we can't shrink the cancer away. I have probably trained, I know I've trained more MD, PhD students here at Ohio State than anyone. I love having students. I've had, like I said, over 100 students in my laboratory. It's uh, when it's all said and done, it's all about mentoring the next generation so that when we're gone, there are others there to find the unsolved mysteries, if you will. So for me, academically, professionally, the greatest thrill I have is mentoring. It's just the ultimate high is to be able to see great hungry minds um, so thirsty and you're able to provide an environment and occasionally some mentoring to watch them grow and become uh, great in their own right. So it's, it's, it's a total high. And probably a naive question, I guess, because I don't know a lot about, um, I guess, the subject in general, but we constantly hear about new cancers popping up. How close are we to, you know, kind of really catching up to new cancers being discovered versus us curing older ones or being able to actually... That's a great question. What we're learning is that cancer is really not a disease. It's probably hundreds and hundreds of diseases. And what we're, what we're catching up on, to use your term, what we're learning is that how each cancer is different and how really before, if the three of us had lung cancer, we'd say, oh, we have, we have lung cancer. But now it's like you have this kind, you have this kind, I have this kind. And we're putting you into separate cohorts and we're treating you differently, sometimes with a pill, sometimes with chemo, radiation, or surgery. And it's making a big difference. Um, to do that, we need to have, I always say, we need to build the Amazon for cancer, right? If I order a book on Amazon of mice and men, what happens? I get a note right away that says, if you like Mice and Men, you like these three books. How did they do that? They had big data. They found a thousand people who wrote, read of Mice and Men. What other books do they read? They serve them up to me. They're right. I would like those. We're building that right now in, in cancer. We're building something called the Orion the Onco Oncology Research Information Exchange Network. It's a partnership started with OSU and Moffitt Cancer Center. We've now got 17 cancer centers. We've consented 200,000 patients. We're building the Amazon of cancer and it's really going to help us figure out all the different types of cancers and how to treat them individually. Yeah, that sounds incredible actually if I'm thinking about it. So so if I'm getting it around this right, um, you'll be able to, when a patient comes in and says, hey, I have specifically this type of cancer, you'll be able to pull a database of the history of everyone who's ever had that type of cancer within those institutes and how things have worked for them. Exactly. And you could, as a patient, go into the database and go, where are there patients like me that aren't like Josh? You know, how are they treated? Who treated them? Where are the protocols available for my treatment? That's what Orion is building. It's really, really exciting. It's been incredibly uh, successful to date. 
Absolutely. We've even got the U.S. military have joined has joined it, so we're excited. That's incredible. So, yeah. um, I guess kind of one of the last questions here as we're wrapping up uh, centers around the theme of our show, and the theme of our show is live uncomfortably, mm-hmm. and because we feel uh, in order to be successful, um, you have to do more than just what makes you comfortable every day. Yes, so, big believer in that. Um, how do you feel the phrase applies to your life, and what do you think of when you hear it? Well, I think if um, you talk to enough people around Ohio State have been here long enough, long as I have, I'm tenacious. I'm always pushing the limit. Occasionally you get slapped down. <laughs> um, and it does make you go home at night a little nervous about what you're trying to push on, where you're trying to go. We uh, have some incredible ideas, like, you know, uh, just different things we're trying to do. They, you know, they're not usually done in a university. Um, we're trying to create alternate streams of revenue right now so that we can uh, fund research. And some of the ideas we have are, they're, at a university, you just, you just don't do that. But I don't accept you just don't do that. I, I ask the why not, as does my entire team. We have a great, great cohesive team. Like I said, Jeff Walker's an amazing uh, leader, business savvy, and we just keep pushing and pushing. And um, I, I like that motto. I hadn't heard it lived uncomfortably, but I have a lot of sleepless nights. And about it's about you know where we're going, the risks we're taking, and the fact that you know 3,500 people work for me, and we gotta sustain the effort. We're a huge employer in uh, Columbus um, and uh, we're delighted to be able to do it for the patients that we serve but you know you got to keep putting the food on the table, got to keep moving, got to stay ahead of the dog catcher you know. I'm fortunate as we close just to acknowledge that I have a super super family. I've been married for I think 32 years, about to be 32 years to the same woman, uh, my wife Ani and she has always understood that I'm passionate and even addicted to what it is that I do. She understands and respects the importance for the cancer patients, for my students. She's an amazing partner, and we've been fortunate to have three amazing children, Christina, Marie Louise, and Michael, and uh, they're all uh, incredibly supportive, always have been supportive of what I do. So for all of that, I'm incredibly grateful. Well, Dr. Kelly, we're really grateful for your time today. I really enjoyed the interview. Uh, Conquerors, I hope you guys really enjoyed that. Are there any last words you want to say before we uh, sign off here? I think what you're doing is great. Um, I hope that uh, we get some uh, recruits out there listening to what we're doing, (laughs) get excited about what we're doing, bring more great people to uh, the great Ohio State University. So thanks for your time. Thank you. And Conquerors, thanks again. We'll talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH... They are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. 
And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.